0: Hello, Whistle Stop listeners. I'm working away on a new episode deep down in the mines, but I'm here to give you something special. In the meantime, it's the first episode of Charge, the new narrative podcast miniseries from our dear friend and colleague, Emily Bazelon. For more than a year, Emily has been reporting on a special uh, gun court in Brooklyn that was designed to fast track gun possession charges and be a speedy machine for harsh punishment. And while she was reporting, something interesting happened. The Politics outside the courtroom started to change as a new generation of activists and insiders started challenging the old system. The show really dives into the current shifting ideas about criminal justice. Charge tells you not only a compelling human story, but it also poses the big, tough questions that are at the center of our national conversation about reform. What exactly makes someone a criminal? Can you ever really outrun that label of being called a criminal? And if you're going to take apart the machine we've built in America to punish people... Well, what do you replace it with? I hope you like the show as much as I do to get the full series. Subscribe to Charged in its own feed. You can find links to do that in the description of the podcast or a description of this podcast, I should say, or just search for Charged in your favorite podcast app. Okay, here's episode one of Charged. I hope you enjoy.
1: A bit of housekeeping before we get started. This podcast is a co-production of Slate and the Appeal, a new publication about the justice system. And it's a companion to my new book, also called Charged, and available wherever you buy books. Okay, thanks for listening. Here's the show. It's an elementary rule of politics. Any elected mayor has to have the police on their side. But from the day Bill de Blasio took his seat at City Hall in New York, his relationship with the police went from bad to worse to catastrophic. First, de Blasio cut way back on the practice of stop-and-frisk the cops' favorite tool for shaking down people on the street. Then, a white officer killed an unarmed black man on a Staten Island sidewalk. That death rocked the city. Thousands of protesters took to the streets demanding justice for the death of Eric Garner. At least 30. 30- de Blasio blamed the tragedy on, his words, a history of racism. Every New York cop felt implicated. Next, de Blasio went on TV and said he'd warned his biracial son to be very careful around the police. So now it was personal. When two officers were later gunned down and murdered in their patrol car, their funeral smoldered with anger. de Blasio stood to speak, and rows and rows of cops turned their backs on him.
2: Hundreds of police officers turning away as the mayor of New York City speaks.
1: The police were in open revolt. Here's the head of their union, Patrick Lynch.
0: There's blood on many hands tonight. That blood on the hands starts on the steps of City
2: Hall in the office of the mayor. Are we all set? I'll take silence as acquiescence. Yeah, exactly. Get us going.
1: A year later, the top brass of the NYPD gathered around the mayor at City Hall for a press conference. And now they couldn't get close enough. On TV, it looked like the political version of a group hug de Blasio ate it up.
2: I want the people in New York City to realize these are the people who keep you safe every day, all in one room.
1: How did de Blasio pull it off? It was actually a nifty bit of political maneuvering. The mayor came up with a way to make the cops happy that would also please his liberal base. The answer to his troubles was his version of gun control.
2: We announced today a tremendous step forward in our work to drive down crime in this city. Right here, right now, we're doing something that will get guns off the streets, keep them off the streets, get those who use guns to prison where they belong.
1: De Blasio's plan was an all-out war on simple gun possession. Every case over and done in six months. And most importantly, whenever possible, long stretches in prison.
2: If you pick up a gun, you will suffer the consequences. I think it's as simple as that.
1: The cops loved this idea, and progressives went for it, too. They saw it as a tough-minded solution for violence. Here's Ken Thompson, Brooklyn's first African-American district attorney.
3: Every year, thousands upon thousands of people are murdered with guns throughout our nation, from Brownsville to the south side of Chicago to the parishes of New Orleans. So we stand here today because this is a very important initiative that we're going to roll out with a dedicated court to handle gun cases.
1: In Brooklyn, they call this new place gun court. For the last three years, I've been working on a book about criminal justice, and I spent a lot of time in gun court, on the 19th floor of Brooklyn's big courthouse. I got to know the defendants who were sitting on the benches. They were almost all young black men. And right away, I noticed something I didn't expect— The cops weren't sending the most dangerous shooters in New York to gun court. They were sending the people who were the easiest to arrest. Then I noticed something else. The young men in gun court didn't just surrender to the system. They maneuvered around it in often brilliant ways. Meanwhile, outside the courtroom, activists all over the country were also maneuvering. They were trying to dismantle America's machine of punishment, but they were up against the same forces as the young men I was talking to on the benches. So, gun court became a test of power, and also of the very nature of crime and punishment in America. We're going to tell you the stories of some of these young men searching for a way out, and also of the people trying to take apart America's machine of punishment and wrestling with what to put in its place. I'm Emily Bazelon, and this is Charged, a true punishment story inside New York's gun court. I want you to meet two people who will help me understand this very particular moment in criminal justice. Their names are Eric and Terari. They were born in the same neighborhood, but in different eras, 25 years apart. They both dealt with the street life growing up of gangs and fights and guns. But one of them wound up with real power, and the other ended up in real trouble.
3: My name is Terari, I'm from Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and I'm 24 years old.
1: In the first two years after gun court opened, 851 people went through it. Terrari was one of the first. He's a hip-hop artist. Music was his oasis even before he was born. Here's his mom, Valinda.
3: When I got pregnant with him, (laughs) I was in a park one day, and I don't remember which song I was listening to, but it was a nice song. He was just a little too active in me, and I just put the headphones on my stomach. He stopped moves like he was listening, and...
1: (laughs) I was like, I think I'm onto something, so I just kept doing it. The headphones kept working their magic long after Tari was born, so his mom kept using them.
3: So my mom seen me up late one night. I was reading a book, um, the Berenstain Bears. So she just put headphones on me and said, "Here, listen to music." Like, I was never into music like that at first, but when she did that for the first time, like I started getting into it and stuff.
1: Terrari's grandfather, Belinda's dad, was actually in a doo-wop group called The Dubs. It hit the top 40 charts in 1957 with this song. Oh, be Belinda played her dad's recordings for Tarari, and on his own, he found all kinds of music.
3: Have you ever heard of um Rig- Rigoletto? I was just listening to all the music, like, I, I just felt it. And that one song popped up, and I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) and that that was one of my favorite songs. I
1: don't don't know why. (laughs) (laughs) Eric Gonzalez is our second kid born in Brooklyn. He grew up a generation before Tarare, only 15 blocks away. Eric's mother came to New York from Puerto Rico, She raised him on her own, worked multiple jobs, so Eric spent a lot of time with his extended family. Growing up in the 1980s was an especially violent time in Brooklyn, so Eric had to stick up for himself.
2: You know, I was about 5'7, 5'8 in middle school, so I was big enough, tall enough, and I was free with my hands. I would fight if I needed to fight. I remember I was walking, and I had a nice pair of white-on-white uh, white Pumas. They they were sweet, and I loved them. I would clean them with a toothbrush. And I was walking, and, uh, you know, um, I heard these guys saying, yo, let's get his sneakers. So I ran, um, they caught up to me, and it was like three of them. We fought, um, and we fought, and we fought, and um, you would see kids um, often on the train with their, you know, only with their socks. And, you I was determined that I was not going to walk home barefoot.
1: Eric's Pumas were scuffed and dirty by the end of that fight. But they made it home on his feet. Drari got into fights, too. But by eighth grade, he'd also figured out how to entertain everyone. One day, a teacher heard him rapping in the lunchroom and told him to sign up for the talent show to perform in front of everyone.
3: When I seen the whole school, it just made me hype. Like I didn't miss a beat, I didn't miss a word. <laughs> I felt like I was I was in the BET Awards or something. Hearing all the claps and everybody hugging me, <laughs> all the girls coming towards me and stuff. It felt it felt amazing. Actually, after that song. Um, it was at, it was a parent-teacher conference, and everybody just surrounded my mother like, "Your son is amazing. Oh, my God, Tarari was so wonderful. I didn't know that he can do this because he was very shy in school. So they didn't know that he would just pop out like this. Even the children around him that he really didn't open up to and get along, they was all, Tarari, Tarari, oh, they were so happy. Oh my God. (laughs) I felt like I was famous at that time. (laughs) Felt the
1: fame. When Eric was in eighth grade, he went to check out his local high school a bunch of times.
2: Every time I went to visit it, um, there was always some kind of fight. Um, There was gang violence in front of the school. Every time, I went there three or four times when I was in the eighth grade to take a look at it. And every time I said, wow, this place is terrible.
1: So he found out about another school on the other side of Brooklyn.
2: When I went to visit it, it had a campus. There were people from all over Brooklyn there. The kids were playing frisbee on the lawn.
1: Eric enrolled in that school, and now he was on the subway for more than an hour each way. His life split into two parts, his new high school during the day and his old neighborhood at night. And there, the issues on the street were still the same.
2: I had been with people walking down the street who were carrying guns and um, they were friends. I wasn't interested in it, but I I was around it all the time. One time I was with, uh, you know, a person who used to call my cousin, went to his house every day as a child, you know, my mother babysat him. I was with him one day, I probably Sophomore junior in high school and he says, Hey, you want to come to Coney Island with me? And I'm like,
1: Sure. The trip didn't go the way Eric thought it would. His friend met up with another guy, and the next thing Eric knew, he was on a side street in the middle of a massive deal.
2: I had never seen, you know, a bag of drugs that large, and I was really pissed at him. And he was like, "What do you know, what's the big deal? You didn't touch the money or the drugs, like nothing would have happened to you. And I was like, I don't want to go to jail, man. And then this is not what I intend to do with my life. He ultimately went to jail, we selling drugs, got caught down south and got a 15-year sentence. And so I had to separate myself from people that I was very close to. And there was a lot of friends like that.
1: Tarari went to a different kind of high school in 2009. There were no Frisbees and no lawn. His charm and his music won him friends and kept him safe, for a while at least. But one day in ninth grade, Tarari was trying to take a test, and a kid he didn't know kept breaking his concentration by talking. They had words. A few days later, the same kid walked behind Tarari in class and smacked him on the head. They fought. That day after school, Tari was heading home on the subway with friends.
3: We get on the train, but I see boy I got into a fight with. He's in the group, like, amongst us. And as soon as the doors close, all I know, I'm feeling fists flying at me. And I got jumped on the train. So my friend, he he stopped, like, he stopped, and I got off the train. My body's bruised up because I was protecting my face the whole time.
1: Thinking about what it would be like to go back to school, Tari made his decision. He knew who to talk to
3: he was from my school and i told him like listen like can you get me a um like what's up with the what's up with the guns and stuff like i, I need me a gun he was like mm, i got you and like days later he had caught me and stuff and what kind of gun was it
1: that's alvin my producer
3: it was it was a revolver 38 like i know now i, need, I actually need protection
1: So now that Terari had his revolver, here was a new puzzle. Where was it safe to keep a loaded gun?
3: I used to always hide it. You know, I went into my mom's just in case something happened. Police crashing through the door and stuff, and they found a the gun. Nah, kept it somewhere else.
1: That somewhere else was his friend's locker.
3: He was a basketball player, so he had a little storage room.
1: One night, Terari realized he'd never actually shot a gun before. He needed training. So he turned to YouTube found a video that showed him how to hold a gun and how to load it. And then he went up onto the roof of his apartment building for target practice.
3: I wasn't shooting at cans or nothing. I was just shooting in the air just to see how powerful it was and to get the hang of it so I don't have to ever be scared. Because to be honest, I never really wanted to use it. <laughs> Never wanted to use a gun.
1: Afterward, he used his flashlight on his cell phone to find where the casings had fallen onto the roof. He picked them up and stashed them in his pocket, just in case someone came. Over the two years I reported in gun court, I met a lot of teenagers who talked like Tarari. They said they never fired a gun, or only did it a few times for practice. Most hid their guns, and also like Tarari, almost never at home. They were as wary of the weapons as they were proud of having them. They said they got the guns for defense, Here's Tarari.
3: I was bullied damn near my whole life. Like, I'm small. I got into a lot of fights, like, and I had nobody to ever protect me.
1: Many of them made basic Second Amendment arguments. Like, it's a dangerous world, and you have to make tough decisions to survive in it. Here's another teenager I met in gun court.
3: It's sad that I say this, but I'd rather get caught with a gun and do two, three years jail time than not get caught with a gun and wind up being dead.
1: The guns started to seem to me like armor the kids didn't really want.
4: You feel an added layer of security or, or power. Having a gun in, in, in black and urban culture has been associated with having like power or clout or relevancy.
1: That's Kadeem Gibbs. I met him when I started reporting in gun court. He was one of the advocates who worked that border zone between the kids maneuvering in the streets and the cops enforcing the gun court's new mandate. Kadim knows that there are plenty of illegal guns floating around New York City. Every year, the NYPD seizes around 5,000 of them. Last year, 161 people were killed by handguns. The politicians look at those deaths, and they see a crisis. But for the kids Kadim works with, this is just the hazardous ocean they swim in. Getting a gun for protection, it seems to make sense. Kadim tries to convince them otherwise.
4: One thing that I always challenge young people on is protection. Like this notion of, if I have this firearm, I'm in, like, invincible or nothing is going to happen to me, right? And that's like, that's false.
1: Kadeem knows what he's talking about. He speaks from the experience of his own childhood.
4: So when I was 12, um, was when I got arrested for the first time for, for bringing a gun to school. I started like being in the streets around that age too because my mom was, you know, dealing with her own issues.
1: Kadeem's mom was struggling and she wasn't around much, so he felt he had to take care of his siblings. He started selling drugs, got caught a bunch of times.
4: Long story short, like I ended up doing like five different bids from the time I was 12 to 22.
1: He told himself the same thing as Terari and the other defendants. He had a gun for defense. But even though you buy a gun for protection, you almost never use it that way. Khadim learned that in the hardest possible way.
4: I was shot when I was a kid, and I had a gun on me when I was shot. You know what I mean? It didn't make me bulletproof. It's like I still got shot.
1: When Eric neared the end of high school, he had to figure out what to do next. Around that time, he read a book that changed his life.
2: Bonfire of the Vanities.
1: Bonfire of the Vanities the Tom Wolfe novel from 1987.
2: I mean, I I read the book in like one night. I didn't go to sleep, and I I was all in.
1: Bonfire is a story about a bond trader on Wall Street who gets arrested for a hit-and-run that kills a poor black kid. It's a morality play about high society brought low. That's how I remember the book anyway. But it's not what Eric remembers.
2: What fascinated me by that book, um, these prosecutors had so much... um, authority and discretion over what happened to people's lives and who got a second chance and who went to jail. And I think what that book did for me was it changed my focus of what I wanted out of my life. What I wanted was to be a person who got to be a decision maker.
1: Okay, I know this is going to sound kind of crazy. It was one book. But the way Eric tells it, Bonfire took him through college and through law school. He moved back to Williamsburg, to the same exact block where he grew up. And he really did stick with his plan to become a prosecutor. He took a job in the Brooklyn DA's office. At work, Eric didn't talk about the fights he got into growing up, or about being around drugs and guns.
2: I always thought that if that was publicly known in the DA's office, it would undermine me, or maybe they thought I would be conflicted. I wasn't conflicted, but I did see the people who I was prosecuting in totally different uh, lenses than my colleagues, because I, I never felt that there was a separation between them and me. like They were neighbors.
1: Over the next 20 years, Eric worked his way up in the DA's office. He did just about every job. Then in 2014, Brooklyn elected Ken Thompson. Remember him? The borough's first African-American DA. Thompson had actually never worked in the office he was taking over. For his number two, he had to find someone who understood the court system and the streets of Brooklyn. Thompson knew exactly who he needed, Eric Gonzalez. On New Year's Eve, when Torari was 20, he got a call from his sister. She was at a party in Queens, and a guy there was hassling her.
3: It was, like, sexual. Like, I ain't gonna say rape or nothing, but, like, she didn't feel comfortable with the boy. Just inappropriate touching. And so I went to go pick her up, and one of the guys threatened me. Like, we'll shoot you. We on, the way. we on our way to your hood. Trying to scare me up.
1: Tari and his sister got home, and one of the same guys sent him a message on Facebook. And then the threats got real and in person.
3: Guys came to my door with a gun. Like, they they had a gun on them. One of them had it on his waist. And he was actually threatening. And my head is like, this ain't child's play and stuff. This is serious. Like, endangering my family now.
1: Tari flashed back to something that had happened in his early childhood. He wasn't sure if he remembered it but his family had told him the story many times over the years
3: um when i was young um i had experienced a home invasion at my, with my aunt they shot through the door and the guys took me and held the gun at my head.
1: that wasn't going to happen again tarari went out and got his gun a couple nights later he saw a car circle around his neighborhood it made him nervous he made sure his gun was loaded
3: for protection Like, I I ain't want to, like, you feel me? I don't want to be out here naked.
1: The following evening, Tarare was with a friend in the lobby of the friend's apartment building. Tarare had his gun hidden under his hoodie. They called for a car. They were just standing there. You can see it on the closed circuit video, exactly as Tarare describes it.
3: So we waiting for the cab, and we just talking and stuff.
1: The cab comes. His friend walks out the door. Tarare starts to leave too, just as two men dressed in regular clothes come up behind him. They bar the exit, and he turns around.
3: They just, yo, stop. So they just charge towards me, they grabbing me. I'm like, whoa, like, what's going on? But at first I'm thinking I'm I'm being a victim of kidnapping or something.
1: The thing he remembers is that his mailman was there, a few feet away, watching the whole thing go down.
3: I'm just thinking, like, what the hell? I got a gun on me. I'm trying, I'm screaming for help, like, James, help me. That's the mailman's name, like, James, help me, please.
1: But James couldn't really do much of anything. Neither could Tarari. The men pulled out their badges. They were plainclothes detectives. They started wrestling him to the ground.
3: I'm twisting and turning, and the cop is trying to, like, he's patting me down, but I don't want him to feel the gun. But the cop was big, so he just lifted me up, and he just took the gun off my hip, and it was over from there. I just knew it from there, like, I'm going to jail.
1: spring of 2016, Ken Thompson, Eric's boss, called him into his office to tell him something. Thompson had cancer.
2: He told me that I was the first person outside of his family he was telling. I was shocked because he was only 49 when he told me.
1: A few months later, Eric went to an event, and for the first time in weeks, he saw Thompson.
2: He had dropped, you know, a lot of weight. And it was the first time people had seen him since his surgery. Um, and he never came back from it.
1: Thompson's death shook Eric. They'd both wanted to make big changes. And Thompson was also Eric's friend. They were just getting started on other plans. Now it was all on him.
2: When he passed, it was really tough. It felt like we had so much that we had intended to do. I don't know, like at that time, I didn't know what was going to happen.
1: There was plenty of cause for uncertainty. Eric wasn't a politician. Outside of the Brooklyn courthouse, no one had really heard of him. But he was Ken Thompson's guy. And so a week after the funeral, the governor chose him to finish out Thompson's term. Eric was now in charge of the Brooklyn DA's office. And as he'd imagined when he read Bonfire of the Vanities all those years ago, that meant he had real power. There's an old saying about prosecutors, they can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. They can also pretty much guarantee that someone goes to prison. Or they can agree to no jail time at all. Those choices were now effectively in Eric's hands for the hundreds of defendants passing through gun court and the tens of thousands in the rest of the system. Eric Gonzalez was now in a position to shape the futures of a lot of people who'd come up the way he had, starting as the timing worked out with Torari. Uncharged. Trari goes to Rikers Island, one of the most violent jails in the country, with no end in sight.
3: I gotta get myself prepared for this. I'm locked up with other guys. I'm little. I'm a new guy. I don't know if I got enemies in here. I'm trapped.
1: This episode of Charged was produced by Alvin Malef and written by me. Jack Hitt is our senior editor, mastering by Merritt Jacob. If you want to learn more about the issues raised in this show, I have a new book out. It's also called Charged. Check it out wherever you buy books. Additional script editing for this episode by Vera Lynn Williams. Additional mixing by Chow Tu. Research and fact-checking by Will Reed. Editorial direction by Josh Levine and Gabriel Roth. June Thomas is the managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Special thanks to Rob Smith, Sarah Leonard, Alice Whitwam, Hannah Rosen, David Plotz, Jake Halpern, Jocelyn Frank, Danielle Hewitt, B.A. Parker, Emmanuel Berry, Neil Drumming, T.J. Raphael, Lisa Larson Walker, and the wonderful Ryan McAvoy and Doug Forbush at the Yale Broadcast Media Center. Each week, Slate Plus members get an additional episode of Charged. This week, we're talking more about the making of this podcast with producers Alvin Melleth and Viralyn Williams. If you're a Slate Plus member, you can find that episode in your feeds right now. To learn more and sign up for Slate Plus, head to slate.com slash charged.